0: It's been a difficult week, right? Um, I'm sure many of you have had people calling or emailing you or whatever, asking if you're okay. Uh, I've been responding with something that Dindi said on Tuesday. She said, the earthquake was far away from us, yet very near. I think that really sums it up. Far away physically, yeah, emotionally very near. Um, I don't know how many. Yeah, um, I don't know how many of us are are directly affected or how closely affected. Um, I know many of us have friends or Turkish friends who have family or colleagues in that part of the country. Um, I was in shock on Tuesday evening, and um, people were buying winter hats to put in boxes, you know, just folks in the neighbourhood buying winter hats, putting boxes, sent to the East. And I started explaining to my son, to our son who was here at the time, he was with me, um, about the level of solidarity that Turks have for each other when something like this happens. And I just, I just lost it in the, in, 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 whoops. I also just lost the the uh, microphone. I just lost it in the um in the in the grocery store yeah the The in the neighboring building to us is from Gaziantep. He lost his brother and his nephews, and so he left to go and try and arrange a funeral for them. Yeah, in some way, I think we've all know people who've been impacted by this. I had a totally different sermon planned for this morning. Um, but I realised I couldn't um, go on uh, with that. So, um, also on T- Tuesday was a busy day. Um, then they drew my attention to this passage, uh, which I hope many of you read this this week as part of the um, the uh, essential one hundred readings that we've been doing, and particularly to verse seven. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out, and I am concerned about their suffering. And I knew the Lord was directing me to speak on this passage. So that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to talk about God's call to Moses. I'm going to talk first about the context of the call, but mainly I'm going to talk about the content of the call, okay? So first of all, what was the context of God's call to Moses? Well, basically, Moses was just minding his own business, just getting on with his life. So in chapter 2, he'd become aware of his heritage, and like many before and after him, um, had become enraged at the suffering of his people, and he'd turned to violence. That hadn't turned out well. And he had fled to the wilderness, where he built a new life for himself and his wife's father's business, raising sheep, Right. We have come down from the palace, but still a quiet life. It says in verse 1 Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father in law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Of course, it wasn't called the mountain of God then. It was called the mountain of God a few years later when um, the Ten Commandments were delivered there. Horeb is another name for Sinai. At this point in Exodus, uh, it's just a random mountain in the wilderness that Moses is pasturing his father's in-law's sheep on. Verse 2. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the flame the bush was on fire, it did not burn out, burn up. So, in the same way that we know that the mountain will be called the mountain of God, uh, but Moses at this point doesn't. Um, we also know that. What Moses is experiencing is an encounter with God. But he doesn't, at least not yet. All he knows is this weird bush that looks like it's on fire, but maybe Maybe. isn't. Verse 3. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Still nothing overtly spiritual going on here. I mean, Moses spent hours every day watching sheep. Sheep aren't that interesting, right? I imagine he got pretty bored. So, so far, all we have is a bored shepherd wondering what the heck is going on with this bush. As I reflected on this, it struck me that this seems to be the norm for receiving a call from God. In the Bible, anyway, Moses was just minding his own business, looking after sheep. Saul was minding his own business, looking for lost donkeys. David was minding his own business, also looking looking after sheep. Elisha was minding his own business, plowing his field. Even the apostle Paul was minding his own business, persecuting Christians, right? None of these people were out looking for a call. God just stepped in and interrupted their normal lives and changed them forever. Verse four, when the Lord said that he had gone over to Luke, so, so when the Lord saw that he had gone over to Luke, God called to him, from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. I love this. It's like God goes, great, I've got his attention. So he calls Moses' name. Now remember, Moses still has no idea what's happening. Yeah, So he, he replies with, Hineni, which is usually reply, usually translated quite literally as, here I am. But it's basically just how you would answer somebody in Hebrew if they called your name. If they had phones in those days, when people picked up the phone, they would have gone, Heneni, <laughs> right? Just as in Turkish, you, answer the, you, you often answer the phone with Efendim, which literally translates as my lord, but nobody would actually ever translate it that way, right? <laughs> it just means yes. <laughs> I imagine Moses hearing his name coming out of a burning, not burning bush and responding, Yes? So then, Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Okay, now this is getting a little bit scary. Moses is probably aware that there's some kind of supernatural event going on, and I'm assuming he takes off his shoes. I would take off my shoes if a scary voice out of a of a bush told me to do that. Verse 6. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This Moses Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Only now, in verse 6, does God identify himself. And Moses comes to know what we've known since verse 2, right? I think sometimes we... We uh, over-spiritualize the whole call of God thing. Most of the calls that are recorded in the Bible actually take people by surprise. And they're often more and a little scared by the process. So God's got Moses' attention. What does he want him to know? The first thing God says to Moses is, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out. God wants Moses to know that he knows what's happening on the earth. Because it can be easy at times to think that God isn't aware of what's happening. I wonder if Moses had become like a middle-aged revolutionary. You know, he'd put his life on the line to free his people. It hadn't worked. So he'd retired from trying to stir up insurgency and settle for a quiet life. After all, maybe God was simply oblivious to what's happening down here. I'm told there's a trend amongst Turkish university students to identify as deists. They can't bring themselves to, become, to say they're atheists, but they kind of go halfway. There is a God who made a universe and got it going, but then he went off and left it to itself. Right? He's not really interested in the day-to-day workings of his creation. That's deism. That point of view can be particularly attractive when terrible things happen, like earthquakes that kill tens of thousands of people in seconds. You can feel that you have a choice between no God or a callous God that doesn't care about people. Sure, there's a God, but he's not really interested in what happens here. He probably doesn't even know about it. It's just a tiny blip on the eternal scale of things. On the contrary, God tells Moses, I am very much aware of what's happening. Not only is God aware, he is concerned about what happens on the earth. I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out, and I am concerned about their suffering. God is not some kind of emotional rock. He feels concern for his suffering people. And I would argue he feels concern for all suffering people. In Exodus 34, God will describe himself to Moses as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Those first two adjectives, compassionate and gracious, mean slightly different things. Compassionate carries this idea of um, someone, an obligation to care for someone because of a pre-existing relationship. The Hebrew word for compassion is rahum, and it comes from rehim, the the word for a woman's womb. And this is how God describes his love for his people. Isaiah 49, 15, he says... Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb, that she should, not have, not, that she should have no rahim, rahmim for the son of her rahim? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God recognizes that maybe some women might not have compassion, rahmim, for the child of their womb, rahim, but even though that might be the case, he will never cease to have compassion towards his people. So that explains his compassion for his suffering people, but people that aren't his in any special way, like Israel. The second part of that pair of words describes God as gracious. The societies that the Bible was written in was strictly hierarchical. There were people at the top of the ladder and people at the bottom, and everybody knew their place. And it was an honor culture, like, like Turkey, right? It's important that older people and people in important positions be treated with proper respect. Younger people and people at the bottom of the ladder, less so. There are rules to be kept. Grace breaks those rules, or rather, grace transcends those rules. One scholar says, The usual limits established by law or custom are tr- transcended by Grace. You may have noticed I have a tendency to think in pictures, or at least metaphors. The picture that we have for compassion was the strong love and care that a mother has for her child. The picture that goes with grace is quite different. One person, the picture is one of two adults. One person is rich and powerful, a king, better yet, an emperor. The other person is poor and weak, a beggar by the roadside. The kind of person that the king's security detail sweeps out of the way so the king can pass without being bothered. The beggar has no claim on the king. The king has no obligation towards the beggar. And yet, the king stops the carriage or the limousine or the armoured SUV with blacked out windows, gets out, walks to where the beggar is sitting, he helps him to his feet, takes him back to his car, And to the shock and amazement of his entourage, gives him a home, takes him home for a meal and a bath. That's what grace is. It's an act of kindness that spans a great gulf. It can be a social gulf, like the king and the beggar. It can can also be a gulf of power, like when a soldier has his enemy in his power and chooses not to kill him. That's why the Hebrew word for gracious, hanun, is often also translated as merciful. I said that grace is an act of kindness. And that's really important because being gracious isn't just an attitude. To quote one scholar, grace is active acceptance and active favor. To be gracious means to aid the poor, feed the hungry, Deliver those in death, in distress from defeat and death. Grace sees someone in need and acts to address that need. It doesn't have to be any previous relationship. All that's necessary is that one person is in need and the other person has a capacity to address that need. That's all that's needed. That's why we can say that God has indeed seen the misery of the people in eastern Turkey he has indeed heard them crying out. And he is indeed concerned for their suffering. Like I said, grace is an act of kindness. And that's exactly where God goes next. Verse, verse 8. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into good and, gracious, good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. God is compassionate and gracious, so he acts to rescue the suffering people. He has a plan, a plan that will take them out of their suffering and bring them to a place where they can thrive, a place that will have space, a good and spacious land, and resources enough. A land flowing with milk and honey, resources enough to build a new life out of the wreckage of being a refugee. God knows what's happened in the east of our country. He says, I'm aware. God cares about what's happening in eastern Turkey. He says, I am concerned. God will act to make a difference. In eastern Turkey, he says, I have come down to rescue them. So, what's God's plan? Verse 10 So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. That's God's plan. He's going to send Moses. That's the plan. Just a minute. Didn't he say that he was going to rescue them? He did, and he will. But God usually acts through a person or people. That's his normal way of acting. He acts through a person or through people. There may be supporting miracles, or there may not. But almost always, God works his plan through ordinary people. Miracles are a bit like close air support on a battlefield. It can make the battle easier for the guys on the ground, but it's useless unless you actually have guys on the ground taking territory. Miracles can help expand the kingdom, but there have to be people who are working to expand the kingdom for them to be effective. If that analogy doesn't work for you, that's okay. I thought it was pretty cool, but that might have something to do with spending too much time in war zones. Anyway, (laughs) um, God's plan to rescue the entire nation of Israel is to send Moses. God's plan always involves sending somebody. Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus. It always involves a person. And today, in our context, it involves us. We have a part to play in being God's rescue plan for the people of Gaziantep. And... <laughs> and Antakya, and so many other places. I'm not suggesting we all get in vehicles and drive east. That's not what I'm suggesting. That might not be the most productive way to respond anyway. Although, as I said, there will be opportunities for people who speak Turkish to be part of service teams that can plug in to what's being done there. The rescue effort has come to an end, sadly. But the recovery effort will go on. And there will be a need for support for victims that will continue for months, long after the event has gone from the news. After the 1999 Izmit earthquake, people were in displaced persons camps for two years after the earthquake this will be a long-term response needed. So I'm not suggesting we all get in cars and drive. There's enough issues with people actually trying to get into the, 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 the roads being clogged. But I am suggesting that as part of God's people in Turkey, as part, members of the body of Christ, each one of us has a role to play in showing God's grace and compassion those who are suffering. That could be collecting essential items like clothes or toiletries. Something as simple as soap is really important in the aftermath of a disaster. Not only does it work to combat the kinds of diseases that spread quickly through vulnerable communities, simple acts of personal hygiene (laughs) help restore some sense of dignity and control over their lives to people who have lost everything. imut, the relief agency that we're partnering with, understand that. They have three hygiene trucks in the region. And people go, but is that what's really needed? Yes, that's really needed. (laughs) It keeps people alive. And not only that, it helps them get some sense of control over their lives again. Aik had planned to move some stuff uh, last week, but they're send, they're actually sending, I think it's tomorrow. Correct? Yeah. Um, so they've they've got a vehicle going um, tomorrow with with stuff that's being being collected. Um, as I said in the email, uh, if you'd read that, um, you can all, you can still you can buy supplies at Hebseburada and various other online outlets, and they will ship it. To the, to the East for you. They have the logistical capacity to do that. Obviously you can give money and for those uh, who gave this morning, I, I thank you for their, your generosity towards the, the, the work in the East. Um, it could be actually going and physically working there uh, at the appropriate time. Or as I mentioned earlier, there are growing numbers of earthquake survivors coming to Antalya. They, too, will need clothes and everything. I understand there are children, injured children, in the research hospital and some of the other hospitals in Antalya who are in a really bad way. And there's going to be more children coming who need to be cared for. I was really touched this week um, by a text I saw. with The Ukrainian Volunteer Network caring for the orphans that we've been partnering with, part, many of us have been part of that involved uh, uh, on the ground helping buy stuff and being involved with this work Um, they are encouraging people to give to help the earthquake victims Marina writes Turkey did not turn their backs Turkey did not turn their backs on us in our time of need it's our time to help and they've set they've set aside you know a surplus of donated diapers to give to infants and toddlers to the families who are being brought to Antalya, and apparently many of them will be housed in the same area of of the of the of the city where in the province where the orphans are staying. And whatever else we do, we can certainly be praying for all those affected and for those involved in relief. Um, As most of you know, Meryl and I worked in refugee work in Pakistan for 12 years. Um, We need to pray for those who are, um, as well as praying for those who are survivors, we need to pray for those who are serving the survivors. Irrespective of what background they come from, they're there serving the vulnerable. In that, they're doing God's work. You know, God cares for the vulnerable. He doesn't just care for the vulnerable that Christians serve. He cares for all the vulnerable, whoever's serving them. So we need to pray for all of them. And um, the, the director of the UN disaster relief um, area was um, saying that the UN will start their, their fundraising program this next week. Going to going to countries and asking them for money, having worked in the field, I don't know if you're aware. Christian organizations and all kinds of organizations use that money. That's where that comes. That, that's where a lot of our funds come come from when we're in that kind of work. So be praying that the um, the funds for long-term work continue to come in. Um, Often what happens in these kind of situations is they have a big um, they have a big conference and all all countries go there and they pledge money. And that for some countries at least that's as far as it goes, just a pledge, and the money never actually turns up. So we need to pray that people will will, will keep to whatever it is they pledge. So, in closing, four things. God knows what's happening in eastern Turkey. And he says, I am aware. God cares about what's happening in Eastern Turkey. He says, I am concerned. God will act to make a difference in Eastern Turkey and here in Antalya. He says, I have come down to rescue them. God will act through you and me to bring his grace and compassion to, to, to bear in this horrendous Situation. He says, I am sending you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are not immune to the pain of your creation. You're not immune to the pain of people. Far from it, Lord. You weep with the weep, weeping. Lord Jesus, help us to be so in tune with your heart that we too weep with those who weep. Lord, help us to be effective instruments in your hand to touch the lives of those in pain. Amen. We're not going to have a a time of having people come forward in prayer. What I'm going to do at this point is I'm going to ask you um, to turn to people close to you. Can we just think? thank you? Um, uh, just turn to someone close to you and um, you know, maybe in twos or threes, and just let's take some time to pray together for the situation in the East, for those who are suffering, for those who have lost loved ones for those who are seeking to do something to help.